Now then, let's turn to the first passage we read. That's the gospel as it's given by John, and chapter 13, page 1241 in the Church Bible, page 1241. And we read concerning Judas Iscariot in verse 30, that having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Uh, Particularly these words, and it was night. Now we're returning, as I mentioned before the reading, we're returning to the upper room where Christ is gathered with the twelve. And he's gathered with them to eat the last Passover with them. As he said to them, you'll remember, with great desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And he doesn't just keep that Passover, but he converts it. He changes it. He institutes a Lord's Supper, the old covenant meal, gives way to the new covenant meal of bread and wine. It's normally a very, very pleasant thing to consider the events of the upper room, the fellowship, uh, the words that were spoken, and so on. Some of the most intimate and precious passages of Scripture are here set in the upper room. But there's no doubt that one aspect of it is not so pleasant, and that's the one that lies before us tonight concerning Judas Iscariot. But it's there for a purpose, and there, of course, to warn us too. I mean, if Judas was unique, we wouldn't need to fear. The problem is that he is not unique. He's very far from it. So we really need to hear what the Lord is telling us in connection with this man. He was not just in the church, he was prominent in the church. He was very close to the Lord. My own familiar friend, Christ called him in Psalm 41, who ate bread with me, the one in whom I trusted. I don't think we should understand that to mean that the Lord was deceived about the state of his heart, but that Judas was of such a character that he could be entrusted with the treasurership amongst the apostles. But nonetheless, he betrayed him. So it's not so pleasant, but it's very important for you and for me. Now, you'll remember that after supper was ready, as it's put here in verse 2, supper being ended, you'll remember that the Greek word there means really prepared or ready. Uh, After supper was ready on the table, a dispute arose amongst the disciples. The dispute uh, was about honor and status. And there was a very practical reason, you'll remember, for that, because they were disputing who should sit where, who should have seats nearest to the Lord. They were also disputing about who should do the duty of washing the feet of the others. Jesus rebukes them, not just by word, but by example. And he takes upon himself the posture of a servant, and he washes their feet. We saw that there was a twofold lesson there. There was a lesson in humility, but there was also a lesson in holiness. The washing of the feet, as opposed to a bath, represented the ongoing process of sanctification, which we need in this life. 
And if we don't subject ourselves to it, we have no fellowship with Christ. If we're not interested in our feet being clean, we've got no evidence that we've ever had a bath. It's as simple as that. But the rest of the meal, you'll remember, is dominated by two things. First of all, there is the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we saw that last Sabbath night. And what a wonderful thing it is. And still is. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper dominates it. The other thing that dominates the table is just this, the betrayal. The expulsion, we could say, of Judas Iscariot. Iscariot, he's expelled from the table. He's expelled from the fellowship of the apostles. And ultimately, of course, he is expelled from the fellowship of Christ. And expelled from it forever. Judas is really a, a very graphic and sobering example of a branch that's attached to the vine but doesn't really bear any fruit in that connection. Remember, Jesus spoke about the branches being connected to the vine. In fact, we'll come to that. He spoke about that. But uh, some branches are connected but bear no fruit. What happens to them? They're cut off. They're gathered and they're burnt, they're destroyed. That's a picture of someone who's somehow connected, perhaps in the church or something like that kind, connected visibly to Jesus, but not vitally connected, not inwardly, not spiritually connected. It's a commentary on Judas, really. And Judas is a a prime example of that. I hope we are not examples of that. I hope our connection, I hope your connection with Christ tonight is not in things like the Lord's Supper and baptism or just being in the fellowship of Christians or being in church on Sunday, but that you have a living link with the Lord. That's what it's all about. That's what salvation is all about. And the Lord, at the very beginning of the Supper, draws attention to the fact that he's going to be betrayed. In fact, he does it when he's in the process of washing the feet. You'll remember he said to Peter in verse 10, if you just cast your eyes back to the previous page, John 13 and verse 10, Jesus said to Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. In other words, you've been born again, you just need constant cleansing. And if you wash your feet, you're completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, that was quite a shocking thing to say at the Lord's table. They are just sitting at the old covenant meal of Passover, about to observe the Lord's Supper, and he intimates that they are not all clean. And as they're eating, he suddenly returns to the same theme. He quotes Psalm 41. The one who eats bread with me has lifted his heel against me. Now, you can imagine again, you see, and we always need to place ourselves in the upper room, and I hope you're doing that as we're thinking of these things. Place yourself there. Be a disciple for a moment. Put yourself into this situation and think of the effect 
of these words as they come from the lips of the Lord. And you're sitting there. You're one of the twelve yourself. Think of it. Think of the implications of what he's saying. We're not told that they responded. But after a while, it's recorded that he was very troubled in his spirit. Now, Jesus said, of course, at this time, that this was the hour of the power of darkness. And he was deeply aware of that in his own soul. I mean, there must have been a devilish presence. Um, In a way, I suppose there's a strange kind of comfort in the fact that he's aware of the presence of evil, even as he gathers around the table of the Lord. Don't know if you've ever felt such a thing yourself. Satan can attack us anywhere. Especially if we haven't prayed that he be kept at bay. He can come to us at the most holy times and in the most holy places. But Jesus was deeply troubled. And so he specified it once more. One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. This time we're told that they were amazed and that they looked at each other perplexed as to whom he was referring to. They genuinely didn't know. They had no idea whatsoever. And they look at each other. That's what the scriptures tell us. They looked at each other. Could it be you, Thomas? Could it be you, Peter? Could it possibly be John, who's resting on his bosom? Could it possibly be Judas, who is just on the other side of the Lord, a very favored and exalted position? Who could it be? And then Matthew tells us, and how revealing this is, Matthew tells us that they began to say, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Now I think... When we think about that, there's something very touching in it. In spite of their disagreements about certain things and who should sit where and who should do what and when, they obviously love each other. And they love each other very much. And as the Word of God tells us, um, when we love each other like that, we think no evil and we think the best of one another. And they genuinely come to the conclusion that it can't be anybody else. And they're forced inward to say, Lord, is it I? I think that that sets a good example too. I mean, wouldn't it be good if we all felt like that about each other too? That if we knew that someone was to do this, that we would never dream it could be the other. And that it might therefore just be ourselves. Um, That kind of love is a wonderful thing to have. It's something that we ought to have, and if it is lacking, let's pray to have it, to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. But they did say, Lord, is it I? That's a healthy thing, too. There's this kind of very blasé and matter-of-fact approach to assurance that says, "Uh, I believe that's me, that's fine. You don't find faith functioning quite like that in the scripture. I'm not exalting doubt or anything of that kind, far from it. But there is such a thing as realism. There is such a thing as a healthy understanding that some seed that is planted sprouts up for a moment 
and then withers away. There is such a thing as being aware of the evil, of the evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God. I mean, read the letter to the Hebrews. And that's why it's a good thing to take a sober look at self from time to time and ask, where am I going? Which direction am I traveling in? Am I still loving the Lord? Am I still laboring in the Lord? After all, Judas was once a living, witnessing apostle. Now, when they say, is it I, Jesus simply repeats that he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Again, that seems simply a reaffirmation of what he said. I'm saying to you again what I've said to you a minute ago, that the one who is betraying me is one of you. One so close as to have dipped his bread in the dish with me. But he suddenly adds a word of warning. But woe to that man. It would have been better if he had never been born. Now, we can't disguise how fearful these words are. Do they not strike you as fearful? Do they not make you tremble? Does the very thought that it might be better for you had you never been born make you tremble? I'm sure it made them tremble. It had an effect, I think, we could say, especially on two people. First of all, it had an effect on Judas himself. When Jesus said it would have been better for that man if he had never been born, Judas then says, Master, is it I? A couple of things to notice. First of all, how he addresses him. The rest call him Lord. He calls him Master. In fact, every time he speaks to him, he calls him Master or Teacher. Is that not interesting? It's as though the bond between himself and Christ, whatever it's like, and we'll come to this in a moment, is not really what it ought to be. There's not a proper acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, as master of his own life, as the one that he's bound to know and to love and to honor and to serve. That's just absent. He's teacher. He'll accept him as a teacher. He accepts him as a great teacher. Rabbi, is it I? In other words, the relationship is not right. It's not right between Judas and Christ. There is a relationship there, but it's not right. We need the right relationship. I want you to notice, too, as Matthew draws attention to, that Judas only asks, is it I, after he hears about the terrible judgment that falls on the one who betrays Jesus. Now, he's already begun the process of betrayal. Don't forget that. Just a few days before this, he had gone to the chief priests and he arranged a price of 30 pieces of silver. So he knows who the Lord is speaking about. He's not talking hypotheticals here. He knows. So he doesn't say, is it I along with the rest? But when Jesus suddenly announces the fearful doom that it would have been better for that person if he had never been born, he then says, is it I? In other words, far gone as he is, his conscience is stirred by the thought that he may be judged, 
that he may be condemned to a lost eternity of pain and anguish. He is not stirred at the thought of hurting the Lord or dishonoring him. Like the other disciples were. When they said, is it I? What motivated them was nothing to do with the punishment that awaited because Christ never spoke of anything like that. For all they knew, it might have been forgiveness for that person. What really hurt them was the thought that they could hurt the Lord. And is that not true of a true Christian? What would hurt you is right. I mean, is that not true? I mean, you can ask yourself the question, what would hurt you if you were to betray the Lord? Is it the consequences that would fall upon you? Or is it the fact that you could just do such a thing? If you really love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you honor him for what he has done for you, if you respect him as a man who lived and died to save your soul from so great a death, then you would not willingly hurt a hair of his head. No. That's how they felt. But it wasn't how Judas felt. Like every unconverted person, in the last analysis, the self conquers everything. It's himself. It's his own destiny, it's his own pain, it's his own possible suffering. Is it I? And Jesus turns to him and said, you said it. And I don't believe anybody else at the table heard him say, you said it. Simply because Judas sat beside him and Jesus simply spoke privately. You said it. The other person who's moved by the announcement of doom is Peter. Uh, Peter can't leave it alone. He's plagued by the thought. And I suppose when Peter says, is it I, in a way he had more reason than most, with the exception of Judas, to ask that question. Except that Peter doesn't know it really. He does look inside and he says, is it I? But I wonder how much of himself he really saw. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, you see, when it comes to superficial assurances and being blasé about Christianity. Um, did Peter know just in how dark a situation his own soul was? Did he know how self-reliant he was that night? Did he have a clue that he was in such a perilous position that just a couple of hours later the Lord would turn to him and said, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail because Satan is pretty near extinguishing it. He would have stood up at this point and he would have said that, well, as he did, as he did, though all forsake you, I'll never forsake you. He had every reason to say, is it I? But he was troubled in the last analysis too by who could do this to the Lord. How could such a thing be done? And he beckons across the table to John, who's close to Jesus, lying in Jesus' bosom. And he just beckons, ask him, ask him, who is it? And Jesus says to Judas, uh, sorry, Jesus says to John, he is the one I give the sop to. You know, the Passover is effectively over. The Lord's Supper is certainly over. There are still things on the table. The sop, it's almost like, um, I don't know exactly how you would describe it. It's almost like a little spring roll. It's just a, 
piece of flat bread with things inside it, wrapped in bread, and you would dip it in a sauce. And the Lord dips the sauce, the, the sop in the sauce, and he passes it to Judas. Again, you see, nobody knows that. There's nothing unusual in passing the sop. And after all, the Lord didn't reach across the table and pass it to a random person. He passed it to the person beside him. But that was the shock to John, you see. That was the shock to John, that the Lord takes the sop and he passes it to none other than to Judas Iscariot. And then Jesus turns to Judas and he says to him audibly, what you do, do quickly. Do it quickly. And we're told that Judas went out. Nobody knew why he went out. In fact, when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly, they thought it was just simply business. They thought it was giving to the poor. It's almost irrelevant, but I can't let that go. Isn't it interesting that these people who were living in charity gave charity? They lived on the givings of other people, and they saw to it that they gave themselves. They thought nothing of it, but the scriptures are so full. He went out immediately, and it was night. Now, do you think that that is a a time-marking expression? I don't. What's the point of it? I can't help but feel that that's a spiritual statement, primarily. After all, as Jesus said just shortly afterwards, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is night time, and the powers of hell are being unleashed in their fury. And Judas is going out to the night because it is night time in his own soul. The devil, we're told, has just entered him. We'll see that in a second. And he goes out into the night. Now, I think the real question is how did it come to this? And I suppose that involves two questions. Why on earth is he in this group in the first place? And why on earth did he leave it? Why is he in it and why did he leave it? Now, I'm conscious that looking at such a question in many ways is diverting us away a little bit from the upper room. But I think it's just too pressing a question to leave. It's just too relevant, too serious, too serious. We've got to look at it. Why is he here and why does he leave? And the reason I'm asking this question has something to do with what I mentioned right at the beginning, that Judas Iscariot is not unique in his sin. There may be a sense in which he's fulfilling a unique purpose, but it's a mistake to demonize the man. It's a mistake to think of him as somebody kind of grotesque and subhuman, as a kind of evil, malevolent character that is almost somehow unrepeatable in history. People make the same mistake with the Antichrist. Uh, There's all this ridiculous speculation about the Antichrist every time a really bad person appears outside the church. It's been going on for literally thousands of years. It's Hitler, it's Mussolini, it's Pol Pot, and so on. They forget that the original son of perdition was right inside the church 
and right next to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your clue to the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, you'll find that he's very much inside the church, that he's taking God-like powers to himself. If it were possible, it would deceive the very elect. That's your Antichrist for you. And that's why people don't recognize him. If you've got the wrong identical picture, you're just not going to recognize him. Here, it's important to understand that, well, let me put it this way. What strikes me most about Judas is just how plain ordinary he is. How plain ordinary he is. Just like most people who find themselves in a lost eternity. That's what makes the human diabolical here. It's what makes the diabolical human, that he's just so plain ordinary. Judas joined the disciples of Jesus in very early days when we're told that the people began to flock to him, not just from Galilee, but from Judea. Now, Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot from uh, the derivation of his name, from Kerio, seems to be from Judea. I think it's significant in redemptive history in the Bible that the betrayer is always from Judah, the royal princely tribe. The tribe that was destined to be salvation is also the tribe that produces the hostility. Again, notice the same pattern. The real problem is inside and it's close. Which tribe betrayed Samson? If you go back a few weeks to our study, it was the tribe of Judah that betrayed Samson. Samson tested that tribe because they were the royal tribe and they betrayed him. Now the only disciple Jesus has from the royal tribe of Judah is this man Judas Iscariot. And he began to follow him because he understood him to be the Messiah. He didn't follow him to deceive him. He didn't follow him to betray him. He didn't follow him to be nasty to him. Not at all. He believed that he was the promised Messiah to come. Now, he may have had very earthly and carnal and unspiritual ideas about what a Messiah was, but that for now is neither here nor there. He thought that this was God's anointed deliverer to bless the people of Israel. After a time, Jesus chose him as one of the twelve. And I suppose to us, in a way, that's where the mystery comes in. After all, Jesus knew at the point of choosing him what was in his heart. Halfway through his ministry, uh, Jesus tested all the disciples. You'll remember when he preached a sermon in the synagogue that was essentially about election, really, which a lot of people don't like. But when he preached a sermon about election, we're told that the people in Capernaum just left the synagogue. We're told that the 12 apostles were left. And instead of begging them, uh, Jesus turned around and said, Do you want to go away too? You're free to go if you want to. Do you want to go or do you want to stay? Peter famously speaking on behalf of nearly all of them said, To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life, even when we don't understand them too well. You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This time, Jesus doesn't pronounce his benediction on Peter like he did the previous time. Peter said a similar thing. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This is not a revelation given to you by any human being, by any flesh and blood, even your own flesh and blood. 
but my Father has revealed this to you from heaven. This time Jesus doesn't bless him. He simply says very starkly to the twelve, have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? And then John writes, for he knew from the beginning whom he had chosen. So Jesus knew from the beginning at the point at which he admitted him into the twelve. Now that raises the question, why did Jesus admit him? And I think in fairness it's not an easy question. But I think again, something similar to what we had just a couple of weeks ago, I think Christ is setting an example as to how we must act as office bearers in the church. We must accept profession, consistency of life, and gifts. Not try and look into the inward recesses of the heart. Now, that's where God alone looks. And yes, Jesus sees there. But in terms of admittance into office, it is always on that basis. A consistent life, which Judas had. Outwardly, as far as could be seen. Profession of faith. And gifts for office. And he had that. He had the gift of government. And he became one of the twelve. One of the twelve. How foolish we are today in the churches when we think that just being a member of a church saves you. I can't remember a time, certainly in the last hundred or so years, when reformed churches became so lax in this regard as just to accept professions as always being passports to heaven. They are not. They are not. And Judas rose, even in the ranks of the twelve. He was gifted. He preached Christ as the Messiah. He healed the sick. He cast out evil spirits. Jesus, of course, tells us that not everybody who did that was saved, but Judas famously did it. Never once do you find the disciples coming back and saying, hey, there's one of us who never seems to be successful here. He becomes the treasurer too. He's entrusted with the monies that come in and the monies that go out. So somehow he began well. But how many do begin well that don't end well? How many even good people, good men and women, genuine Christian men and women, make serious loss later in their lives? But how many make total shipwreck in their lives and never make it at all? In the parable of the soils, when the seed is sown, you'll remember that only one seed came to fruitful, fruitfulness, one seed. Another two seeds looked promising, but they withered and they died. And one of the seeds, of course, that withered and died, withered and died because of the thorns, And Jesus tells us that the thorns which grew up around this seed represented, amongst other things, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of life, and the deceitfulness of riches. How aware we should be of these things, choking the life out of you. Do you know if you feel that? The pleasures of this life, with its food and its drink and its entertainment, whatever, choking choking the life out of you 
and the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitful how? Because they promise you everything. Promise you happiness, promise you security. As we thought recently, they're sometimes called securities, money. Promising, promising, promising happiness, promising power, promising influence, the deceitfulness of riches. The reason I'm lingering in that one is because it was Judas's problem. He was a covetous man. He liked money. And for him, as Paul says, it became the root of all kinds of evil. For him, it represented power and opportunity. And that's really what he was in the church for at the end of the day, because he thought it was going to be a kingdom. He thought it was going to be power. You think, oh, well, that's not me. Well, I hope it's not you. And he becomes... He becomes what everybody becomes who isn't a true Christian. He comes to be disappointed with Christ. He comes to be disappointed with Christ. And he starts to steal from the box. And he starts to steal from the box because he thinks suddenly, ah, this isn't going, this isn't going anywhere. And every time he thinks it's going somewhere, when the people are starting to come in and starting to follow, Jesus seems to do something that breaks that spell. It's as though he doesn't seem to want to get this popular movement behind him. And he gets disillusioned. And once he starts stealing from the box, he's opened the door for Satan to come in. One sin, as you well know, leads to another. And if we're following Christ tonight for the wrong reasons, if we're stuck to the church for the wrong reasons, if we're professing faith for the wrong reasons, then one day, unless God has mercy, we'll go out into the night ourselves. The crisis point came just six days before this at Bethany, when Mary had an alabaster box of perfume that was worth a five-figure sum. And she smashed it and poured the ointment over the head and feet of our blessed Lord as a picture of his preciousness and as a picture of his death and resurrection too. And Judas was beside himself with frustration and anger. Um, to get everyone on his side, he said, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Uh, John tells us that that wasn't his real, it wasn't his real difficulty. His real difficulty was that he stole from the box. And this was a fantastic opportunity to enrich himself. It was also the last straw in terms of thinking that Christ's view of the kingdom was like his. He would never waste 10,000 pounds on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you spend £10,000 on the Lord Jesus Christ? Mm, maybe the spirit of Judas can come in quite quickly. Was there not maybe something else I could do with it? Of course there is. There was something else Mary could have done with it too. But he thought it was a waste of money. And he caused strife and argument. He got all the disciples on side that night, which is a, an interesting thing in itself. You, you often find that a, a hypocrite just has a funny kind of way of 
getting, getting in there and disrupting a spirit and pu- putting people out on each other. They, they take you away from Christ-centeredness. They take you away from what's lovely and beautiful and good and God-honoring. And in they put these thoughts, you see, which are plausible enough. I mean, oh, yes, they all thought, yeah, wouldn't it have been far better to sell this and give it to the poor? Totally missing the wonder of what was going on. Not seeing the spirituality of it. Not seeing, shall we say, the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fragrant as he was in life and death and in eternal life. No. And we're told solemnly that Satan entered him that night. He entered him. And he goes away and he makes a grubby, pathetic, awful deal to put Christ into the hands of the chief priests who can't just get a hold of him because he is just a bit too popular for them. But he'll put them him into their hands for 30 pieces of silver, infamously the price of a slave. Covetous as he is, you'd have thought he'd have held out for a bit more than that. That's all he's getting. It's just the price of a slave. It's just a drop compared to what was in that precious ointment. But I, I'll sell the Lord for that. I'm fed up of this. I'm fed up of church. Fed up of Jesus, and fed up of the whole thing, and he sells him for 30 pieces of silver, and he has the gall to sit that evening at the Lord's Supper. But we're told that at the Lord's Supper that night, Satan entered into him. Again, yes, again. Uh, because if you let him in once, it's easier to come in a second time. Having entertained him royally before, He's going to entertain him again. The Satan who entered him to initiate the process is now entering him to complete the process. And when he receives that sop from the hand of the Lord, we're told that Satan entered him. Just following the sop, it entered him. God allows us to go our own way. You will never, you will complain in hell about a million things. But one thing you can't complain about is that you got what you didn't ask for. You got what you wanted. You wanted a godless life and a godless eternity, and that's exactly what you'll get. And this time when Christ speaks to him, you'll notice that there's nothing left. Christ says simply, what you're going to do, he says, do quickly. There was a time before when I think we could say that Christ's speeches to Judas were designed to arrest him, to stop him. Even when he said, one of you is a devil, we could interpret that as a call to repentance, a call to self-examination, a call to change. But you'll notice at this point, that's gone. There's nothing like that there. What you do, do quickly. I came across somebody once um, who said to me that they thought Judas was in heaven because he had obeyed what Jesus said here, that Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Now, aside from the fact that the Bible teaches very plainly that Judas is not in heaven, uh, that's not the right way to understand the expression. Uh, Jesus is not giving him a command 
to do something that he wasn't going to do before. He is simply saying, do it quickly. In other words, it's something similar to this. Judas, I know you, and I know you very well. I know that you're sitting here biding your time. I know the grubby, awful, can we say hellish deal that you've done. I know that you're waiting for an opportunity to consummate it. I know that when I said where I am going tonight to the Garden of Gethsemane that your ears pricked up because you're going to arrange that to be done. I know it. I know the course of your heart and I am doing nothing to stop it. It's going like a full flood to its own destiny. It's your heart. It's your choice. It's your will. Get it done and do it quickly. That's how we should understand the words. The rest you know. Judas gets up. He goes and he arranges for the organization of a temple guard with temple officers, a large crowd with swords and with clubs. He tells them that at a certain time Jesus can be found in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when he finds Jesus in the garden, he plants a kiss on his cheek. Jesus says, friend, why have you come? He uses the word friend because he's recalling Psalm 41. And Jesus is betrayed into their hands. Once it's done, he's full of remorse, not repentance. Ah, we'd have loved to have seen that. No, it's just remorse. He suddenly feels darkness closing in on himself. He goes to the Sanhedrin. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. He throws the money on the floor of the temple. We'd like him to fall on his knees and pray. But no, he goes out and he hangs himself. And if the scripture says, cursed is he who hangs on a tree, yes, we know that that was fulfilled in the life and experience of our blessed Lord, that he died hanging on a cross because he was indeed cursed of God. But this man was cursed of God too. Irrevocably so. Irrevocably so. He wasn't cursed that we might be blessed through him. No. He's cursed, period. As Peter solemnly said in Acts one twenty-five, he went to his own place. Now, just like the words, it is night, send a shiver through your soul, so do the words that he went to his own place. Because that place is hell. And that's precisely why the Lord had said that it would have been better for that man had he never been born. Now all that would be easier for us to take if the man had been demonic, if he had been devilish and satanic. But at the end of the day, he just loved other things more than he loved Christ. And don't you? Do you? If you love something more than you love Christ, you too will go to your own place, and that's not heaven. Heaven is for people who love God first and who serve God first, who love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Everyone else goes to their own place. And at the last, in the last analysis, you see, really, 
That's what Judas didn't have. I mean, it's one thing to concentrate on what he did have, and I'm conscious I'm going on, I'll just bring this to a close. I'm conscious very much of what he didn't have, of what he did have, and so are you, his avarice, his covetousness, his greed. But at the end of the day, if he had simply received the Lord and believed in the Lord, how different that would be. He too would be saved, but he didn't love him, and that's the point, you see. He never loved him. He never saw him as a sin offering. He never saw him as a lover of his own soul. He just saw him as something else, somebody on whom he could hang to get himself power and influence and whatever. He just couldn't sing that psalm, could he? I love the Lord because my voice and prayers he did hear. I, while I live, will call on him who bowed to me his ear. He couldn't sing that because he didn't feel that. He didn't know it. If he could have sung that, it would have squashed his covetousness and his avarice. And he would have gone to heaven too. Sad to say, his sin conquered him. Now, no one knew that night why he had gone, but the one thing that it changes in the upper room is the spirit of the place. In a way, that doesn't surprise us. When he went out, the spirit changed completely. The Lord himself seems liberated from this sense of darkness that was oppressing him, and he begins freely to speak to the disciples. That will take us back onto far more pleasant ground God willing, next Sabbath evening. But it's no more useful ground than this one. Don't be a Judas. Don't forsake the Lord. Don't turn away from him. Don't go out into the night. Don't go to that place. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we pray that we would really understand the difference between darkness and light and between heaven and hell, knowledge and ignorance, serving the Lord and not serving him at all. Help us, Lord, to understand our need of faith and real living radical repentance. May our tears not be the remorse of the self-pitying Judas and our cloud of darkness and guilt. May they rather be the tears of Peter, so sorry for hurting the Lord and letting him down. May our relationship to our precious Savior be one of love always, aware of his love to us and us loving him in return. May we be warned by this man who is still tonight in his own place and forever will be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 19 on page 224. And we sing to the tune, St. Columba. At verse 12, at the top of the page, Who can his errors understand? 
O cleanse thou me within from secret faults. Thy servant keep from all presumptuous sin. And from Wednesday night, you'll remember the key to that is faith. If, if you fear, you know, the answer, the great antidote to fear is faith. Just keep believing. That's all. Um, faith is a wonderful thing. It means that sometimes we slip, but we always get up again. And do not suffer these presumptuous, these willful, defiant sins to have dominion over me. Then righteous and innocent I from much sin shall be, or from the great sin shall be. The words which from my mouth proceed, the thoughts sent from my heart, accept, O Lord, for thou my strength and my redeemer art. These are the kind of words that we'd have loved to have heard from the lips of that man. These last three stanzas, let's stand and sing them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.